Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 44. Before we jump into new material, let's do a rapid review on, hmm, how about neonatal conjunctivitis? Sure, that's sufficiently random. And there are always some interesting distinctions to remember there also. Do you remember the three dangerous causes of neonatal conjunctivitis? The three dangerous causes of neonatal conjunctivitis that you need to consider in the ED are gonorrhea, chlamydia, and herpes. That's right, and gonorrhea is the most aggressive of the three. It presents in the first week of life with purulent drainage and ulcerations, and it can disseminate to cause gonococcal sepsis. You should culture the drainage for confirmation and treat the baby with cefotaxime. Chlamydia, which presents in the first month of life, can disseminate into the lungs. In this case, you would need oral erythromycin to treat. The third and least dangerous cause of neonatal conjunctivitis is herpes. In this case, you need to look for vesicles in the eye. It is also very aggressive and can disseminate to the brain. You need to treat this with IV acyclovir. Scary stuff for sure. Let's get into the new material. Here's the first one. A 21-year-old man was bitten by a spider. He has a picture of the spider on his phone, and you see a violin-shaped marking on the back of the spider. Which of the following is a potential complication of a bite by this spider? Is it A, abdominal rigidity, B, autonomic instability, C, coagulation abnormalities, or D, pancreatitis? The correct answer here is choice C, coagulation abnormalities. Violin-shaped markings on the cephalothorax should make you think of the brown recluse spider right away. These are primarily found in the south-central area of the United States. After a person is bitten by a brown recluse spider, a bullseye lesion with central necrosis develops, and the toxin from the spider can lead to hematologic abnormalities like hemolysis, coagulopathy, and even disseminated intravascular coagulation. It's also important to remember that severe envenomation can lead to renal failure and pulmonary edema. Do you remember what the treatment for a brown recluse spider bite is? While treatment is mainly supportive with local wound care, endapsin can be used to help prevent worsening of a local infection. That's right. And remember that the antivenin is not readily available in the U.S. Let's review the other answer choices. Choice A, abdominal rigidity, and choice B, autonomic instability. These are potential effects of bites from a black widow spider. Black widow spiders have a red hourglass, which is located on the ventral surface not a violin-shaped marking. The effects of the black widow spider's toxins are mostly at the neuromuscular junctions, and these cause neurologic symptoms like autonomic instability, muscle cramping, abdominal wall rigidity, fasciculations, headaches, and even ptosis. Treatment here is mainly supportive with opioids and benzodiazepines. You should also know that there is an anti-venin available for black widow spider bites, but it's really reserved for severe symptoms and presentation. Right, and choice D, pancreatitis, is not really an effect of spider bites at all. This is just a distractor answer choice, as pancreatitis is a potential complication of scorpion stings. As you wrap up the patient's wound, the triage nurse calls you over to see your next patient. A 66-year-old man with hypertension and hyperlipidemia presents after an episode of severe chest pain while walking to work. He's currently asymptomatic. A 12-lead EKG is performed, and it shows a sinus rhythm at 78 beats per minute with minimal ST elevation in leads V1 and V2 and biphasic T waves in V1 through V3. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, give aspirin and activate the cardiac catheterization lab? B, give aspirin and admit for serial troponin testing and a stress test? C, give aspirin and discharge home with cardiology follow-up in 24 to 48 hours? Or D, send a D-dimer and consider a CT pulmonary angiogram if elevated? 
Lots of different paths for this patient, but you really have to know the right one here. The correct answer is A. Give 325 milligrams of aspirin and activate cardiac catheterization lab. And the reason is that they're describing Wellens syndrome here. Wellens is highly specific for a critical stenosis of the LED or the left anterior descending coronary artery. Patients may be pain-free at presentation and the first troponin might be normal or minimally elevated. But this patient requires immediate percutaneous intervention or at least an immediate evaluation by the cardiac cath team. And there are actually two types of Wellens syndrome that you want to know about. Our patient here has type A, which presents with biphasic T waves in V1 through V3. Type B presents with deeply inverted T waves and leads V1 through V3. You'll want to see some pictures of these to help you identify them in the future. We'll post some EKGs in our blog at roshreview.com blog. Let's go over the other answer choices. Because these patients are at high risk for having a critical LAD lesion, choice B, stress testing, is actually contraindicated as this may precipitate a transmural myocardial infarction and a lethal dysrhythmia. Choice C, discharge with follow-up, is also contraindicated as these patients' symptoms can progress in a short period of time. And choice D, D-dimer and CT, these aren't indicated as the patient's symptoms are not consistent with a pulmonary embolism. Moving on to the next question, and we're taking a trip to my home state, New Jersey, for it. We have a 17-year-old boy from New Jersey who presents with a three-day history of rash and a one-day history of facial droop. He also complains of a headache. You note a rash consistent with erythema migrans, aka bullseye rash, and a left-sided facial nerve palsy. In addition, you note mild nuchal rigidity. A non-contrast head CT is performed and is normal. Which of the following is the next best step for this patient? Is it A, acyclovir and corticosteroids, B, lumbar puncture, C, MRI of the brain, D, serologic testing for Lyme disease? The presentation they're describing here is for early disseminated Lyme disease. He should receive answer choice B, a lumbar puncture, to further assess for neurologic disease. That's correct. The most common neurologic manifestation here is meningoencephalitis with superimposed cranial neuropathies. CNS Lyme is treated with ceftriaxone. It is very important to obtain a lumbar puncture in patients with neurologic manifestations like headache, nuchal rigidity, vomiting, visual changes, and confusion to help rule this in or out. What will the lumbar puncture show if it is in fact neurologic manifestation of Lyme disease? For a neurologic manifestation of Lyme disease, the LP will show lymphocytic pleocytosis with a moderately elevated protein level. PCR and cultures should also be sent for Borrelia burgdorferi as well. Do you recall the three stages of Lyme disease? Do I ever. Stage 1 is early Lyme, which manifests with the classic erythema migrans rash. Patients might also experience nonspecific flu-like symptoms. Stage 2 is acute disseminated infection, which occurs after hematogenous spread of the spirochete and can result in neurologic, cardiac, arthritic, or ophthalmic manifestations. Stage 3 is late Lyme disease, and in this case, you can have chronic Lyme arthritis and worse neurologic manifestations like fatigue, chronic encephalopathy, memory impairment, hypersomnolence, and psychiatric disturbances. Also important to remember is the classic association for the most common cardiac manifestation of Lyme disease, and that's a first-degree AV block. Lots of high-yield pearls in that one. But pay close attention to the next one as it's commonly tested. A 52-year-old man presents with decreased sensation in the upper extremities and chronic neck pain. 
he states that the loss of sensation has been progressive for months. On a physical exam, he has decreased sensation to pain over the upper back, shoulders, and arms with intact proprioception. What disorder does this patient exhibit? Is it A, anterior cord syndrome, B, Brown-Sicard syndrome, C, central cord syndrome, or D, syringomyelia? This patient exhibits signs and symptoms of D, syringomyelia. These aren't hard questions if you put in some time to memorize the definitions and look at a few images, and we'll have an image on the blog, of course. Syringomyelia is defined as the presence of a cavitary lesion in the spinal cord. The lesion is chronic and progressive, and symptoms vary based on the location of the syrinx. The most common complaints are headaches and neck pain, but sensory disturbance, cranial nerve dysfunction, and gait abnormalities are frequently noted as well. Most common location of syringomyelia is the cervical spine, and when the syrinx occurs in the upper portions of the cord, specifically the neck, patients present with a cape-like distribution of loss of pain and temperature sensation in the upper extremities with preservation of light touch and proprioception. Physical examination shows sensory loss along with muscle wasting and weakness in the hands and arms. Symptoms may be worsened by a Valsalva maneuver. You need to order an MRI to lock in this diagnosis. What a thorough explanation. Let's go over the other answer choices here too. Choice A, anterior cord syndrome, that's characterized by loss of motor function below the lesion and preservation of position, touch, and vibration sensation. Choice B, Brown-Sicard syndrome, that presents with ipsilateral motor function loss and contralateral pain and temperature sensation loss. And C, central cord syndrome, this one presents with bilateral motor paresis and sensory impairment. Definitely worth committing to memory for your clinical practice and exam preparation. Let's move on to the next question. What is the most frequently seen oculomotor sign in patients with Wernicke's encephalopathy? Is it A, lateral nystagmus, B, lateral rectus palsy, C, meiosis, or D, ptosis? I remember this one from studying for the USMLEs. The most frequently seen oculomotor sign in Wernicke's encephalopathy is A, lateral nystagmus. But patients can also have B, bilateral lateral rectus palsies, and C, meiosis, but these really appear in more advanced cases. Choice D, ptosis, that's not commonly seen in Wernicke's. Wernicke's encephalopathy, as a reminder, is a result of thiamine deficiency and is most frequently seen in chronic alcoholics, but can also be seen in patients with starvation, hyperemesis gravidarum, and following bariatric surgery. Diagnosis requires that at least two of the following four criteria are met. First, dietary deficiencies. Second, oculomotor dysfunction. Third, cerebellar dysfunction. And fourth, altered mental status. In gait ataxia, peripheral neuropathy, and vestibular dysfunction are all frequently seen as well. Remember that patients with Wernicke encephalopathy can also have Korsakoff syndrome, which is a disorder that results in anterograde and retrograde amnesia. Treatment consists of aggressive thiamine repletion. Do you remember what electrolyte should also be repleted with thiamine? You should replete magnesium with thiamine. Perfect. And finally, the last question for this episode. A patient with metastatic breast cancer presents with weakness and nausea. The EKG shows a shortened corrected QT interval. Which electrolyte abnormality is likely in this patient? Is it A, hypercalcemia, B, hypernatremia, C, hypocalcemia, or D, hyponatremia? Hmm, let's use process of elimination to answer this one. B, hypernatremia, and D, hyponatremia, neither of these really have classic EKG findings. 
So it's either A or C. I seem to recall that C, hypocalcemia, can cause prolonged QTC. So the answer here is probably A, hypercalcemia. Great use of process of elimination there. This patient has weakness, nausea, and an EKG demonstrating a short QT syndrome. In the setting of metastatic cancer, this presentation is concerning for hypercalcemia. Hypercalcemia is defined as a serum calcium greater than 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. Levels greater than 14 can be life-threatening. Malignancy is the most common inpatient cause of hypercalcemia, while primary hyperparathyroidism is the most common outpatient cause. Other causes include granulomatous disease, drugs like thiazidiuretics, dehydration, and rhabdomyolysis, to name a few. Here's a fun mnemonic to remember the symptoms that patients with hypercalcemia present with. Bones, stones, groans, psychiatric overtones. This stands for painful bones, renal stones, abdominal groans including vomiting and constipation, and psychiatric symptoms including depression and anxiety. Initial treatment for hypercalcemia is almost always IV fluids if the patient can tolerate it. Well, that's it for new content. Let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Brown recluse spiders have violent shape markings on their back. The toxin here can lead to hematologic abnormalities. There is no antivenin available in the U.S. Black widow spiders, on the other hand, have a red hourglass shape on their ventral surface, and their toxin causes autonomic instability and abdominal wall rigidity. There is an antivenin available, but it's only used in severe cases. Wellen syndrome type A demonstrates biphasic T waves in V1 through V3, and type B demonstrates deeply inverted T waves in V1 through V3. It is highly specific for a critical stenosis of the LAD. Activate the cath lab. There are three stages of Lyme disease. First is early Lyme, which manifests with the classic erythema migraines rash. Second stage is acute disseminated infection, which results in neurologic, cardiac, arthritic, and ophthalmic manifestations. The third stage is late Lyme disease, which presents with worse neurologic manifestations and chronic Lyme arthritis. The most common location of syringomyelia is the cervical spine, and patients present with a cape-like distribution of loss of pain and temperature sensation in the upper extremities with preservation of light touch and proprioception. Anterior cord syndrome is characterized by loss of motor function below the lesion and preservation of position, touch, and vibration sensation. Brown-Sicard syndrome presents with ipsilateral motor function loss and contralateral pain and temperature sensation loss. Central cord syndrome presents with bilateral motor paresis and sensory impairment. The most frequently seen oculomotor sign in Wernicke's encephalopathy is lateral nystagmus. Diagnosis of Wernicke's encephalopathy requires two out of four of the following criteria. One, dietary deficiencies. Two, oculomotor dysfunction. Three, cerebellar dysfunction. And four, altered mental status. Hypercalcemia can cause QT shortening, while hypocalcemia can cause QT prolongation. Malignancy is the most common inpatient cause of hypercalcemia, while primary hyperparathyroidism is the most common outpatient cause. So that wraps up episode 44. We're launching on Google Play soon, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. We also covered a lot of topics from this episode and prior episodes. Go back and listen to old episodes for another review. Be sure to also check out the blog for the questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. 
There are also tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and the words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast, and you can always email us at roshcast at roshreview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. Remember that you can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.